This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar's Investment Management Group, which includes subsidiaries of Morningstar, Inc., who are authorized for the appropriate jurisdiction to provide advisory services. The content is intended for U.S. audiences and European professional investors only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries unless otherwise noted. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. For many of us, this is the beginning of week seven of social distancing. There seems to be a lot of desire to revive the economy, but not as much in the way of tests or a vaccine or any way to ensure a return to work won't be followed by another spike in new cases. In this environment, income investors might despair. The Federal Reserve has lowered rates to near zero, shuttered businesses can't pay stock dividends, and defaults are expected to rise. Yet our income-focused portfolio managers say their prospects for income have improved greatly since February. We'll hear their thoughts on income portfolios in today's environment, today on Simple But Not Easy. I'm Drew Carter. Joining me to talk about income investing are Martin Norton, who's head of outcome-based strategies, and Hong Cheng, who's associate portfolio manager at Morningstar Investment Management. Today's audio comes from a webcast we did last week. Marta began by talking about how she and her team manage portfolios to provide income. So within the outcome lineup, we have a suite of strategies that focus on income. And within that suite are two separate approaches. Uh, We have multi-asset income strategies, where the strategies are aiming to generate a certain level of income above prevailing cash rates and preserve capital over five years or over seven years. Um, So those are more an endowment-like model. And then we also have strategies focused on decumulation. So for people who have been saving and and growing their assets over time and now need to live off those assets in retirement, um, we have a a series of different strategies that can meet those needs. So we're pretty, uh, pretty neck deep in terms of income research and spending a lot of time thinking about the best ways to invest within these various strategies. Marta, what was the income environment like heading into the crisis, roughly mid to late February? And how does that compare to where it stands today? Yeah, so when it comes to the income environment, what we're looking at are the key asset classes that are critical when you have an income approach. So those include areas within fixed income, especially the below investment grade portion of the market, so high-yield bonds, bank loans, and the like. Um, It also includes longer-dated securities, so um, fixed income securities that have longer maturities and offer you a little bit more income for taking on that, that longer loan. Um, and then also dividend-paying stocks, so stocks that are that are paying regular dividends. And when we looked at those three kind of core areas of the income universe, none of them struck us as all that attractive. So if we were looking, say, at below investment-grade bonds, um, what we would like to see is a nice, healthy uh, spread between what the high-yield bond is offering us and what the treasury bond offers us um, to compensate us for the extra risk that we're taking should a company downgrade or, or default. And it really was wasn't there. Um, the fundamentals, you know, we've been at, at, at the tail end of a very long bull market and that affected not just equities, but also bonds. And we felt like the, the risk um, just weren't being compensated with, with what we were seeing from a yield and a spread perspective. And then if we take a look at longer dated bonds, um, 
we actually weren't getting a ton of compensation for going out the yield curve. So the yield curve was pretty flat and it didn't make a ton of sense to to, to buy bonds with much longer maturities um, when they weren't offering you much above cash levels. And then, you know, the equity market wasn't all that cheap. So no matter which way we looked, we didn't see tons of sources of opportunity um, from an income landscape. Of course, today, the story is a little bit different. We've seen a major correction across asset classes, um, and this has affected income-oriented asset classes as well, so high-yield bonds and the like. And so today, we think the compensation is much better. We've actually spent a lot of time thinking about this income environment and when is it attractive and when is it unattractive. And we've tried to quantify it to get ourselves a sense for when is a great time to start adding aggressively to income and when should you be but more defensive. Um, Hong, can you can you talk about our income environment indicator and, and what it was showing us maybe at the end of 2009 and what it's showing us now? Yeah, definitely. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, so like Ma- Marta mentioned, there are definitely factors that impact the income generation uh, across different asset classes. And it's very important for us to understand, okay, first of all, what are these factors that, you know, tend to dictate how easy for investor to get the income from their investment? And secondly, among all these factors, are there factors that um, have provided better indication of income generation than others historically? So if that's the case, then we can track all these factors and we can assign weights to uh, to these factors uh, to get a quantitative assessment. So that's the general idea behind this income environment indicator. It is really a numeric assessment based on the weighted average of the score of the each underlying uh, key factors. And a scale from one to 10, with one being the most challenging income environment, meaning that it's very hard to find any income uh, from any asset classes at reasonable uh, price level. And 10 being the most friendly income environment, uh, which means that you can easily find a lot of asset classes that provide really decent level income at reasonable valuation. So Marta already mentioned some of the key ones. Um, so uh, I would uh, I would focus on three fixed income ones and one equity ones. Uh, so the first one is the steepness of the yield curve. Like Marta mentioned, the you know the we are really seeing a very flat yield curve right now. And the flatter the yield curve is, well, so it's just very little additional yield that you are able to. Um, collect from lengthening the duration of your fixed income portfolio. So that would make income generation much harder. So if we have a flatter yield curve, that means we'll have a lower score for that factor, um, which translates to like a more challenging income environment. And another key uh, fixed income factor is the cash rate. Here, when we look at the cash, we really look at from a really competitive income perspective. So the higher the cash rate is, especially for those income strategies that benchmark uh, their income uh, with a cash plus um, benchmark. So the higher the cash rate is, the harder for this kind of, um, for all the other riskier asset classes to provide a more competitive level of income compared to cash, which means it's harder for investors to reach their income goal. And the other important factor is the option adjusted spread for corporate bonds. Um, If you recall, we talked about this in in the past. This is really the spread that measures the the compensation that you're getting by investing in the credit, uh, corporate credit bonds by taking on those default risk risk and credit risk. Uh, So the tighter the spread is, the less compensation that you're getting from investing in those corporate bonds. And it's the harder it is to hit your income goal because you just 
you won't get you, you won't find that additional yield by investing in riskier uh, fixed income asset classes. Um, so these are some of the key fixed income factors that we look at. And we also look at the equity side. We look at the prevailing dividend yields from equity across uh, different regions. But because uh, fixed income play a really important, like a key role in income generation in most of the income uh, portfolios. So the weights that we assign to fixed income factors are higher. So the, the weight we assign to the equity dividend yield factor is relatively small. But, uh, you know, for each of the score, um, each of the factor we have, this, uh, we assign a score, which is based on the decile ranking of the current level of that uh, factor relative to its own history. So the lower the score is, the more challenging the income environment will be. Uh, the higher the score is, the easier for investors to find uh, attractive income opportunity. Uh, so that's basically the setup. And what we have seen in the past few years is that like um, the score has been at a relatively lower range, uh, lower end of the range. So we track those factors on a monthly basis, and we've seen a lot of three, a lot of four in the past few years, meaning that we're really been in a very challenging market environment for income investing. And that's not surprising if you think about the spread level for corporate bond has been in this record low level for a while. And then the yield curve has just become flatter and flatter since um, since pretty much uh, the financial crisis back in 2008. Um, and if you recall, last year we've seen a few times where, you know, the yield curve actually went, became negative. Um, so steepness actually went to negative. And cash rate has been low relative to history, but it has been rising from, you know, from about zero level since 2015. It, you know, uh, at one time in 2019, at reached 2.4% level. So all of this were suggesting that it has been a very challenging environment for income investor to, you know, reach for that income level that they, they need. Um, and what happened in the past, uh, I would say in the past two months has changed that completely. So the spread level for corporate bonds had widened significantly on both um, investment grade uh, side and also the below investment grade, the high yield side. And also the cash rate has become um, low, much lower is close to zero after the Fed rate cut in March. And if you look at the current score for the income environment indicator, it has improved from 3.7 by the end of last year to 6.7 by the end of March. So a significant improvement, which means it really causing a lot less to collect the same level of income um, from the marketplace. And a lot of those high yielding asset classes are now trading at a much more attractive valuation level than uh, two or three months ago. I know, um, I think this is a very challenging market environment for all the investors, but I do feel like as income investor, we should really start getting excited about what the market is currently offering for income investor. We've been stuck in this low rate, you know, low income environment for a, for a long time where, you know, income is just very hard to come by. But now even like the absolute level of you is still low, but we are definitely seeing a lot more interesting opportunities uh, right now in the market to be added to an income portfolio. And I think we're really excited about these, these opportunities. Thanks, Hong. Interesting that your income environment indicator has almost doubled its score, especially given the fact that the yield curve is still quite flat and cash rates are even lower, approximately zero today. 
Uh, Marta, what are some of the asset classes that look particularly attractive to you from an income perspective now? Sure. So the area that is most critical when you're building an income portfolio is going to be the high yield market, the below investment grade market. This is the part of um, the income asset class world that offers the greatest amount of income potential. So even more so than REITs and some of those other areas that come to mind when people think about income, high yield is that mission critical spot. Um, Because we're valuation oriented investors, because we focus on capital preservation, we're willing to reduce our credit expense exposure meaningfully because we don't want to jeopardize, you know, the the portfolio preservation characteristics just to reach for that extra dollar um, in income. But today, when we look at where high yield sets, we see these spreads that are at, you know, very wide levels relative to even if we're just looking at over the past five years, you know, much more attractive spread levels, um, then that's a time when we think it's worth taking that extra risk to add that level of income to the portfolio. Um, so high yield bonds, broadly speaking, are an area of interest for us. Investment grade corporates are an area of interest for us too. Now, these investment grade corporates, you know, the distinction there being that these are arguably healthier companies with stronger financial pictures, maybe better revenues, less leverage, and that kind of thing. So they don't tend to offer nearly as much income as the high-yield space, but they do offer more income than maybe you know your, your treasury bond and the like. Um, so that's an area of interest too, and it's a way for us to kind of diversify our um, credit exposure across the, the credit landscape. And then a third area of interest for us right now is the convertible bond market. Um, This is a portion of the, you know, below investment grade space that isn't all that well-known. It's not all that well-utilized. It's a little bit less liquid, but it has some really positive characteristics, especially as we deal with this fallout from the coronavirus crisis and that its sector composition is pretty distinct relative to the high-yield bond market. So it's 50% technology and healthcare. And those companies are a little bit more protected, fundamentally at least, relative to some of their high-yield counterparts. So that's another area of interest um, for us. Hong has done a ton of research on the the high-yield space. Is there anything kind of you would want to add along those lines, Hong? Yeah, definitely. I think I would agree that uh, we believe credit overall looks a lot more attractive right now. So Marta mentioned that um, prior to this year, we, we, we were generally very cautious about the credit overall because the spread level were really at historical low level. So valuation-wise, we don't really see much value investing in those, in those uh, very expensive credit sectors. And now for both IG investment grade and high yield, the spread widening has really created a long-term investment opportunity uh, for investors. So the, for investment grade, uh, if you look at the index level, the spread had widened by over 100 bips uh, since the beginning of the year. High yield had widened by over 400 bips since the beginning of the year. It had once reached uh, 11 1100 bips level um, in uh, late March. So we've done some historical analysis, you know, about the spread level. And what that suggests is really, if you look back in the history and look at the time when the spread hit the current level, and you look further for uh, for the next year, one year and next three year for their return, the we're looking at very attractive return level. So it really suggests that it has it's the current market environment with the current spread level. It's provide a really good opportunity for strong long-term performance 
Um, and also from fundamental perspective, there's definitely concerns uh, from, uh, you know, the corporate, the, the COVID-19 and the corporate uh, recession scenario. But we are also seeing some positive development in the credit market as well. If you look at IG, the market is, you know, really already pricing in a lot of the expected downgrades. And the price impact has already been felt by the market by the investment grade investor, and the price has really less room to fall. And additionally, um, the Fed has already indicated that they are willing to step in and provide liquidity in the investment grade market and also uh, to the high yield market. It's unprecedented. And the Fed mentioned they're going to uh, purchase both individual corporate bonds and ETF. And on, on the high yield side, uh, they're going to purchase a, some of the following angel names and also potentially the high yield ETF. So we feel the Fed will really ensure the backstop for those corporate names. Uh, that's definitely a positive sign. And on the high yield side, you know, what we have seen is that over the past several years, while interest rate remain low, those high yield companies were able to push out their maturity wall for their high yield debt. So if you look at the amount of U.S. high yield debt that is set to mature through 2024, that number has declined by 11% in last year. So what that means is that these high yield companies were able to really taking advantage of those low rate environment and refinance their, their debt so that they can lock in the low rate at the same time, push out their maturity further. So if you look at the current market, there's less high yield debt maturing in the next few years, which is definitely help uh, in the current market environment where liquidity is really a concern. So those are some of the positive from fundamental side as well. And on the convertible side, Amarna mentioned definitely uh, so from sector composition, convertible look very different from I, uh, from IG and uh, from high yield. Technology and healthcare account for over fifty percent of the convertible market, and generally those companies tend to have um, like strong um, profile and strong balance sheet, and you know their financial profile are generally strong. Uh, given the nature of, uh, of this COVID-19 crisis, a lot of those, those sectors were less hit by some of the other more cyclical sectors. And also, if you look at valuations, the convertible or uh, most of the convertible bonds were trading under par, and we haven't seen this uh, happening in many years. And this really have provided a great yield profile for, for, for the future. So yeah, that's what I have on, on, uh, on these opportunities. Those are some really important points that as you reach for more income, in a lot of cases, you could certainly be taking on additional risk. So, Marta, how do you think about income potential and the risk for capital destruction, which feels very legitimate right now as we look at the impacts of the coronavirus? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. It feels it feels like a, a real concern, and I think it is one. I think Hong has done a really nice job of discussing the fundamentals of high yield. And I think as you think about risk and income, it's those fundamentals within high yield that are so important to analyze and to have an understanding of. And so the points that she makes about how these companies have behaved when there was a low rate environment and how they managed to push out some of the, the maturities of their debt, I think those are really important points. I think it's also important to note that while High yield is sensitive to energy. Energy doesn't dominate the high yield market. I believe, Hong, it's what, roughly 8% sector weight of the high yield market. Um, so it's it's not, you know, wholly made up of some of these rougher 
areas of the market that are feeling the most pain. I think that Fed support is really unprecedented um, and, and really provides um, a sense of security that wouldn't otherwise exist and makes us more confident to move into the high yield market. So when it comes to thinking about and worrying about capital destruction, understanding those fundamentals and then what the valuations are telling you, um, if you're getting paid for the remaining risk that you see in the market, I think that's a really important trade-off to do, and that's something that we do by calculating our valuation implied returns for all these different asset classes, having yield expectations for these different asset classes, and then also drawdown expectations. So as we manage our income strategies, just like we manage any of our other strategies, we have um, certain you know, return or income goals that we have to meet. And we also want to keep our losses within a certain threshold because that ensures that we can meet our longer term goals. And so we're always looking at the losses that we expect at current prices. So, you know, consistently updating this based on where the market is moving, um, what those losses are and how from a portfolio construction standpoint, those would offset one another so that we can be sure that the portfolio is well positioned and isn't going to experience too too much of a loss. Um, From a portfolio construction standpoint, there's a lot of art that goes into that. So you can start to see an asset class sell off. Um, but if it's been really expensive for a long time, you don't just jump in with both feet. You start to edge in slowly as that opportunity begins to increase um, because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty as to when the market's going to move. So you want to make sure from a portfolio construction standpoint that you're opportunistic, but also really judicious in the movements that you're making there. And so that's what we've tried to do um, within the high market. We use active managers, we use passive vehicles, and we try to be really judicious and also diverse. So, you know, having convertibles, having um, investment-grade corporates, we also use things like preferred stock and making sure that we're spreading out the exposures that we have to these income-producing areas without concentrating too much in any one area. Um, So, uh, capital destruction is always in the forefront of of our minds, and that's why we were so conservatively positioned heading into this crisis, and it allows us to be more opportunistic but we don't lose sight of our focus on preserving capital um, in markets like this. So we continue to keep it in mind as we adjust positioning. Hong, do you have anything to add there from a credit perspective? Yeah, definitely. So I think um, I've mentioned a lot of positive development that we've seen uh, on the high yield side. And uh, definitely there's concern about uh, capital destruction, about default, about downgrade. Um, you know, if you think about fixed income, you think, if you think about the source of capital destruction, one is the default rates, the other is the credit loss from downgrades, and both are happening in the current market environment. So we're definitely seeing a record level of falling angels, um, which are really corporate bonds that were issued as investment grade, but later um, got downgraded into high yield. So we're def- definitely seeing a lot of energy names within, uh, within the falling angels, but also names in other industries as well. Um, and also, um, I think it's fair to say that we expect to see the default rate to uh, to rise from here. We're currently sitting at around 4% default rate as of the end of March. Just to provide some content, the long-term average default rate for high-yield uh, corporate bond is around 3.4%. So we're currently only slightly above um, the, the long-term average. But I think it's fair to say that we should expect to see that the default rate jumping uh, significantly from where we are now. Um, if you look at the forecast from market, we're seeing forecasts of like 8% default in high yield. We're seeing 10% with some very extreme scenario analysis that we saw um, from you know other market 
uh, market participants were seeing a, like 16%, even 16% default uh, for high yield. Um, and if you look at the most distressed part within the high yield, it's still very concentrated in the energy space. About 77% of the distressed debt, which are debt are trading below 50% below par level, are 77% of that is from the energy space. But definitely, it would not be a surprise to see that default, you know, overall for the high yield picking up um, in, in the overall high yield market. But I want to say that, you know, when we look at investment opportunity, fundamental is a key part, but it's not the only part. And what really matters is that um, what has been priced in by the market. And I feel like for the argument for both IG and high yield to say the market is, has already priced pricing in a very a lot of those expected downgrade, a lot of those defaults, and the price had really less room to fall. So, which means that even in a more pessimistic scenario, the downgrade, the the, the downgrade, the default, it, it could still keep happening, but the downside from here is really limited. Um, so that doesn't mean that we're not going to lose money by investing high yield from here. That doesn't mean that default's going to, you know, spread won't get higher or default won't get higher from here. We're What we're not trying to do, we're not trying to time the bottom. Like, I don't think anybody can do that. What we're trying to do here is really compare what has been priced in with the current spread level um, and, you know, what really is going to happen in the market. And I believe from the current spread level is really suggesting a good long-term uh, investment opportunity for not only inv- income investor, but I would say for for all investor, uh, given how attractive valuations currently at. Yeah, important to note that pessimism has already been priced into the market when looking forward as an investor. Looking back at the first quarter, what asset classes in your income-oriented portfolios detracted most from performance, Marta? Well, I'll start with the positive, just to offset things a touch. So I mentioned that we were defensively positioned heading into this crisis. That means that even though we're income investors and we want to beat you know, cash levels, we want to provide a really nice total return for those decumulation strategies, we don't want to take... Um, take losses that we think are going to be caused by, you know, valuation. So given that we thought valuations were pretty high, fundamentals were stretched across the board, both in equities and fixed income, we had a decent amount of cash, um, which wasn't, you know, helping us meet our income target, but it was acting as a source or a um, way to preserve capital. We also had within our retirement income portfolios, a slug of alternatives um, within our, um, our, opportunistic income fund, we also owned long-term debt and intermediate treasuries, not based on valuation, not based necessarily on the income they were producing, but because we we knew investors tend to flee to those assets if there's a credit sell-off or an equity sell-off. So we had some ballast in the portfolio, and that was really, really important. Um, and it really helped preserve capital because within certain parts of our portfolio, we had some areas that were especially hard hit. Now, we know equities in general, high yield in general sold off. So to the extent that we own those, you know, those were sources of pain during the first quarter. Um, but a particular area of pain um, has been caused by that oil price war and then the subsequent just uh, destruction of demand from the coronavirus crisis within those markets. And so we own MLPs within our portfolios. They're a really nice source of income. Um, and they're not, you know, they're a, kind of a niche area of the energy market in the sense that they're investing in midstream pipeline and storage companies. So they're more infrastructure than they are kind of the actual price of oil and kind of something that will always kind of a permanent part of the market. Um, but those have just gotten 
you know, hit a big black eye over this period, I think down 40% year to date. So a really significant loss. Now we're hanging on to that as valuation driven investors. We really think that there is some value there. And certainly from an income perspective, I mean, the yields there 11 ish percent are really, really attractive. But because we had had areas like that, what really helped produce a decent experience during these periods, or at least stem the losses, has been those more conservative positioning. And so I think this really speaks to this kind of holistic portfolio construction that we engage in everywhere and then also within our within our um, income portfolios. Switching gears a bit, Marta, some investors are focused not only on income, but decumulation and retirement. What impact has this year's volatility had on those types of portfolios? So within a decumulation strategy, a big part of the portfolio construction isn't just creating, you know, different portfolios with different equity levels, but it's also testing these portfolios for how they're going to behave in different market environments. So I know many of you have heard of the expression Monte Carlo analysis. That's what this is referring to. So we're looking at a myriad of different market environments and looking at different inflation rates and withdrawal rates and time horizons, and then seeing how different asset classes or asset allocations, excuse me, behave in different market environments. So we have the normal market environments, the the really positive, the happy market environments, and then market environments like this one that are pretty crushing. Um, And what we're doing is we're saying, hey, can we still meet these withdrawals over these time horizons, considering that there will be market environments that are really unfavorable? Um, And so through running those tests, we have a lot of confidence in our decumulation portfolios that they're going to be able to meet the, you know, withdrawal needs and the time horizons that we've associated with them, even with a market environment like this one. It helps that this market environment comes on the tail of a very, very strong run for a very long time. So you look at, you know, going back to the global financial crisis and the market bottom on March 9, 2009, and you stretch it all the way forward to today. Certainly there's been volatility. There was 2018. There were other points of pressure for different asset classes, but by and large, it's been a really, really strong market environment. So people who have been invested throughout that time have seen their wealth grow really nicely, even as they're taking withdrawals from the portfolios. And so a period like this is not all that destructive um, to their financial plan, um, especially um, if it's followed by by rallies and such like that. So we're not overly concerned about our decumulation portfolios. This type of period doesn't really um, cause us to question whether they'll be able to, to meet their mandates. Marta, for investors who might still be a little concerned about the downside, how would you suggest they try and stay the course? Yeah, so quantitatively, if we're just looking at the math of it, uh, we would argue that there's really no reason to to get nervous about being able to meet your goals or, or meet your withdrawal needs. Behaviorally, I think it's a whole nother question. I think psychologically, we all feel the toll of market losses. And I think it's all the more painful for all of us now when our lives have been disrupted. You know, schools are closed. We're all working from home and are, you know, we've got slippers walking around the house. I mean, it's a different world today. And it's really hard, I would imagine, for many clients to stay the course when it feels like everything has been upended. Um, So one thing, though, that we have found to be really powerful with retirement income types of strategies and with strategies in general is to not necessarily focus on how is your strategy performing relative to its benchmark and how is the market performing and what is your strategy doing and you know ping-ponging back between those two different return streams but instead saying what goal do you have and how are you progressing to it and it takes your focus off of you know what the market is doing and the headlines that are screaming at you and instead puts your focus back on what you're actually trying to achieve with your portfolios so I think one of the first and most powerful things someone can do is to 
just change the focus from this relative game to this progress toward goal. I think that's a really important conversation to have. I think a second point to make is that we really cannot predict how the market's going to behave. The market is a forecasting engine. And when we are looking at headlines and we are looking at kind of what's happening to companies, um, the market has already priced in much of that. So to be reacting to what headlines are saying today means that you're not necessarily going to be in sync with what the market is doing. And I think one thing that caught us all off guard, if I look at returns from February 19th to March 23rd, the MSCA US index was down 34%. Um, And that was at a time when we were all just kind of coming to grips with what was happening. If we look at returns from March 23rd to April 19th, the MSCI US index was up 25%. So a massive turnaround in a really short period of time. And if people just respond to those market losses and change their investment strategy based solely on market losses, they're going to miss out on that rally. We saw that in the wake of the global financial crisis. I was speaking with a lot of our clients during that period, and a lot of clients were telling us, go to cash, go to cash, can't take it, we're losing money, go to cash. And they did when we didn't, and they ended up missing the subsequent rally that you know, more than made up for, for what the losses have been. So I just think it's really important to take the focus off on market activity and headlines and run it, turn it to, do you have a sensible investment strategy? And are you progressing in a reasonable manner to that? I think those are the conversations that are important to have with clients. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for being a loyal listener to Simple But Not Easy. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing and maybe even giving us a good rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay safe out there and come back next week for another new episode of Simple But Not Easy. I'm Drew Carter. Bye for now. podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. Neither Morningstar nor its subsidiary shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar and its subsidiaries make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Forecasts are not a reliable indicator of future results. Investors should be aware of the additional risk associated with funds investing in emerging or developing markets. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of capital. Investors should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, risk profile, and consulting with a regulated financial advisor where necessary before making any investment decisions. In the UK, the Morningstar managed portfolios are intended for citizens or legal residents of the United Kingdom. These portfolios can only be made available through the use of an investment advisor appropriately authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Tax treatment depends on individual circumstances and is subject to change. Morningstar Investment Management Europe's address can be found at www.morningstar.com.